Welcome to Telltales, an investing podcast hosted by Hunt Lawrence, Jason Wallace, and Mike Nicoletti. Each week, we discuss topics ranging from geopolitics and macroeconomics to energy and technology. You can sign up for our newsletter at telltales.us. That's T-E-L-L-T-A-L-E-S dot U-S for additional data and content you can use to follow along. The following conversation is intended for informational purposes only. You should always do your own work to determine if an investment is suitable for you. In the interest of full disclosure, I have Max Lawrence here. Since I'm going to talk politics, if Max is here doing work on our non-energy stuff, and the first five minutes is going to be politics, so I'm going to outline what I think, and then Max is Max has a speaking role here. Max is going to say below to here whatever he thinks after I uh, do politics for five minutes. The reason. The reason that we're doing politics is investment. And the reason I, I've developed this view is uh, we've been working in the energy area in Yorktown on putting CO2 in the ground. And based on the IRA, the Investment Reduction Act, you get an $80 credit for putting CO2 in the ground by pulling it out of the stack and taking it and putting it in the ground. And so I began to think on this project that how how, what, what is the vulnerability? You know, could that be rolled back? And I thought to myself, well, it can't be rolled back if the Democrats are still in control of the Senate or they're still president. And then, so I started to think, what is the probability of, of that $80 credit per ton of CO2 going away? And I thought, well, the way it, it, it would likely go away, or, you know, you sign up, you know, high probability of going away is if the Republicans won the presidency, the Senate, and the House in 2024. And uh, obviously, they're not going to win it with Trump. So, DeSantis would have to beat Trump in the primaries. I was talking to a political friend of mine. I said, well, if DeSantis beats Trump or someone beats Trump, isn't Trump going to be a problem because he runs his third party candidate? The person I was talking to said that who is a political person said he thought it was very unlikely that Trump would spend the money to get on 50 state ballots. But if you remember, Perot ran against ran against Clinton and George H.W. Bush, but Perot spent a fair amount of his own money getting on ballots. And Michael Bloomberg, for at least one or two presidentials, has wanted to have the option of getting on the ballot. So he apparently spent his money. Now, the interesting thing is you not only have to spend a fair amount of money collecting signatures, but you have to start two years ahead. And by the time Trump, you know, it's clear Trump wasn't going to have the Republican nomination. It'd be too late, even if he wanted to spend the money. And if that happened, and so in, in trying to evaluate this, this, this project we had to bring CO2 from the Texas Gulf Coast all the way to West Texas to put in the ground for tertiary recovery. I think we pretty much dropped the project. One of the things, one of the reasons we dropped it is, you know, I would assess that as a 50% probability of having Republicans in control of all three uh, branches of our government after 24. 
but now it's Max's turn to say that's not a 50% probability. So over to you, Max. Yeah, hi. I guess, I mean, I, I guess just to preface, I think any conclusion that you want to draw, whatever pattern of control of the, of the three different House, Senate, presidency, I don't think you can say any outcomes really above 50%. When you're looking at just a series of hypotheticals that each have some sort of middling probability of DeSantis being the nominee, Biden still running, what does inflation look like in 2024? I guess if you're just assuming that there's one outcome where there's three, uh, a trifecta control by the Republicans, I don't think you look at the past, the, the midterms that we just saw and feel more confident on whether Republicans are going to take control. I mean, you have a, you have a midterm election year with 9% inflation and you pick up like nine House seats, you lose the Senate seat, and you lose governorships. And then you look at 2024, a Democratic incumbent, at least if it's Biden or someone running and it is said it's on the ballot, abortion's still an issue and inflation is probably going to be lessened. And you have all sorts of vulnerable New York Democrats in the House, like George Santos, who will probably get tanked by George Santos, but all sorts of other New York Republicans who are running in strong Biden districts and same in California. So I would actually say the House of Republicans should be Democratic on the 2024. I think the Republicans will win the Senate. So I think they'll, they'll pick up the Ohio Senate seat from the Democrats that Sherrod Brown currently has. I think Joe Manchin is, I mean, he might as well just retire. He's not going to win that seat again. And they could win Arizona and Nevada. And then you just don't know the presidency. And then I guess the, the other question is, I guess I'm not familiar with the, the to roll anything back. I don't know if you need 50 yeah, votes in the Senate or 60 votes. I think you need 60 votes. It, it, you're, you're just never going to get 60 yeah. votes for that. Yeah. Well, so I've seen ghosts, but I'm, I'm going to continue to see ghosts, I think, on the $80. To move on to gas pricing, the the gas pricing is much to my surprise has basically collapsed. And what this illustrates is that just a little bit of extra supply causes the gas, gas to just crumble. And same thing is true of oil. Now, how bad is gas going to get? I'm reading off a chart. In January, prop gas was four dollars and twenty-four gas was three dollars. By the time we got to May, prop gas was nine dollars and twenty-four gas was four fifty. Now prop gas is three seventy or so and twenty-four is four dollars. Now you can say that. You know, the 24 price is holding and stocks are a matter of discount in the future. So how much of an impact will this have? Um, I will have these gas companies on a page 17 by next week. I just didn't make it this last weekend. But let me give you some numbers in terms of how this has affected stock prices and terrible resources, which Yorktown started, and the Yorktown guy still sits on the board. Started the year at 17 and a half. Its high price was 49, now 28. It may be that the gas market will go in contango, so that the near price, well, it isn't contango, and maybe that we'll slide through this, but I am quite concerned about gas prices. And as I say, we'll have a page 17 with gas prices. The other thing that uh, <clears throat> we're going to try to do over the weekend, because it's a long weekend, 
I'm going to try to make sense out of the 16-page memo. It, it developed organically. So it starts with Charter and Comcast because I had that on my mind. And then page two is NVIDIA, the chip companies, and page three is Apple and Google. And so I'm, I'm not going to change the companies on the pages, but I'm going to update all these for current prices. What I do now is I leave them at the price at the time the work was done. I'm going to update them all, and I'm going to rearrange the 16-page memo. It'll be 17 or 18 pages by the time we get to get around everyone next Tuesday. But there'll be some more logic to how the pages are ordered. In terms of what I used to do when we had 30 pages and we had the in-person meetings in Oyster Bay, I would flip through with commentary. And since even with Max's mission, we're still only about nine, nine minutes into our 30 minutes. So I'm going to quickly turn through the pages with some commentary. Charter and Comcast are kind of interesting. They're not cable companies anymore. They're providing internet service. And there is competition from T-Mobile especially. So those are a little tricky. We have with Mike and Jason, enormous amount of expertise on the phone about NVIDIA and AMD and Intel, and we'll get into that later. On page three, we have Alphabet, which looks cheap. You know, it's gotten cheaper. A lot of concern that open AI is going to be a problem for them, especially with Microsoft making a big commitment to it, but we'll get into that in a few minutes. Uh, Netflix, Disney, and Amazon. Amazon is really struggling. They really don't have free cash flow. They've got a lot of work to do. Disney kind of struggling too. Iger came back at Disney. Maybe Bezos will go back at Amazon. I don't know. AT&T, Verizon, T-Mobile, page five. It's amazing. This is how we, you know, how we hook up our, our cell phones, which we're so dependent on. These are huge companies, but there's really not that much free cash flow in them. MasterCard, Visa, and PayPal. PayPal looks like a bit of a mess. MasterCard, Visa look like just terrific companies, just 25 times free cash flow, which you'd like to buy them at 20 times free cash flow. Walmart and, and Target. Target looks like a bit of a mess. A Walmart, 600 billion of sales and, and, and only 5 billion of free cash flow. It's very skinny. Lowe's and Home Depot are kind of carbon copies of each other. Okay, Lowe's, I, I, it's my best performing non-energy stock. I've been in, you know, I don't know, years or more, but I mean, it's up four or five times. Really good capital allocation in terms of raising dividend, buying in stock. Exxon, Chevron, and Conoco is kind of fun to see how the, the big majors look. Exxon's tied with Microsoft, or Apple's the leader in the clubhouse with 90 billion of free cash flow. Exxon and Microsoft are tied at 60. Obviously, at lower oil prices, Exxon wouldn't have 60 billion of free cash flow. Microsoft, uh, remarkable company, and we'll get into later. We'll try to draw Mike and Jason out on how much uh, having this AI capability will add to Microsoft's position on everything, not just Bing, but everything. The financial companies, these are interesting. They're the ones who are going to report first. JP Morgan is generally the first one to report. They're interesting companies, but you know, don't don't I mean they're they're ten times free cash flow, but you know, but on the other hand, you know, having their own set of issues, uh, coping with interest rates, be 
having real interest rates, not zero interest rates, or real interest rates being the interest rate after inflation. Cat deer, they're like carbon copies of each other, even though cat does construction, deer does farming. Both, you know, it'd be nice if they were a little cheaper, if they weren't 20 times free cash flow. Uh, the the midstream companies, KMI, Enterprise, again, they're they're not that interesting, I don't think. And I mean, this is an area I know quite a lot about. The pick of the litter is Enterprise. Pfizer, enormous amount of free cash flow. When Max signed up, to, since he doesn't have to go back to school to the end of the month, first target was try to figure out uh, can Pfizer maintain 40 billion of free cash flow? Uh, We've got to turn it over to Mike and Jason. Maybe next week we'll get them to talk about that. But you know, I think the conclusion we come to is no, because we don't think they're going to be, you know, the same kind of COVID vaccine sold in 23 as 22. And then you have patent expirations on a lot of their principal cash flow generators. The upstream companies, EOG and Magnolia, EMG and Magnolia, EOG is 10 times Magnolia's size. But they have the same characteristic, which for less than half the free cash flow, uh, CapEx pay less than half of their free cash flow or half their EBITDA, they are able to increase their production 10%, really remarkable performance. Uh, the restaurant companies, I think Mike and Jason kind of like Chipotle better than McDonald's. I guess everyone likes Chipotle better than McDonald's, but McDonald's is too expensive at 20 times free cash flow, but they do have a lot of free cash flow. The companies that were added in page 16 last weekend, I wanted to look at FedEx and United next to each other. When you look at the statistics, uh, you, you probably prefer United. I also wanted to look at Nike and couldn't think that there was really a substantial company that was a competitor with them. And felt since Costco has been such a great performer as compared to Walmart or Target, I wanted to get them on a sheet. So I'm not saying that Nike and Costco have that much similarity to United Parcel FedEx, but I was I was very anxious to get them on a sheet. Costco has this incredible record, but trades at 40 times free cash flow. So it's it's you know it's it's awfully expensive. And so with that, I think with all the people saying that that uh, this chat software is you know, it's like the biggest technical breakthrough in two decades. I think we want to get Mike and Jason drawn out on how does that impact Google. But I think rather than talk about problems for Google, I'm more interested in their assessment of what, what it might do positive for Microsoft. Microsoft is on page nine. I figured if Microsoft got down to $200, uh, you'd be only paying 22 or 23 times free cash flow. And if, you know, they've agreed to invest 10 billion in open AI, and presumably they're going to use, they're going to have some kind of exclusive use and not only try to resuscitate Bing, but also, you know, make their, their other products, their Windows products, their Office products more proprietary. There are subscription models. So, Maybe including the uh, AI feature, maybe they could charge more per month for their subscriptions. But Mike or Jason, whichever one of you wants to, uh, I mean, do we do we like Microsoft better with that 
big investment in open AI or, or will it, how much difference will it make? So do we like it better with the investment in open AI? I, I, I think so. They, they're actually kind of strategically in a very good position. They've been an investor in them early on. And I've heard reports that that's up to, they may have as much as 50% control of the company. So they're in a strong position. It's cost them a lot of money to get there. I think we did a comparison before. Think about DeepMind at Google was an acquisition for $500 billion. And you know they've obviously put a lot of money into it. So th- there's many different ways to go about adding on the latest technology. And Jason's going to talk about this kind of technology breakthrough and what it really means. But from a perspective of developing the competency of a particular product and and maintaining a, a defensive moat, if you will, this totally makes sense. And, and building it into the product really just makes the Microsoft suite more powerful than it was before. So it's from that perspective, it's kind of a no-brainer. When it comes to search, Microsoft's Bing search was sort of, I mean, it was an epic failure in the first iteration. And then it's sort of quietly been sitting in the background. And the, the, the funny thing about Bing search is the number one search term on Bing search is Google. And presumably that's from less technologically savvy people having Windows computers that default to the Bing search engine. And then they go search for Google so they can actually do their Google searches. So, it, you know, the Bing is, is there it's just hasn't been that relevant. So Google doesn't have a whole lot to lose, and I, they're kind of seizing the moment, if you will, when it comes to these products. Google, on the other hand, is in a position where they have a lot to lose. They have a fantastic search product. They've got 92 or 93% of the market for search, which is just absolutely amazing. It's They need to move slower in this. So I think both companies are doing the logical things. Right, what this reminded me of uh, in the last couple of weeks is all the stories you hear about who invented the light bulb. And if you ask someone, they always say Thomas Edison. But there were also two other competing groups that did invent the light bulb roughly the same time, and they fought over the patents for years. So I think that's what we're seeing here is, is everything's lined up for technologically this to be capable to be done this, this past year, this year. Um, OpenAI went public with it first. We know Google has something equally as capable in the in the waiting in the wings. Nvidia does as well. And just last week, we saw an, a press release from a company called Anthropic, and that is actually a group of former OpenAI engineers. So they couldn't have been working on this very long because OpenAI hasn't existed that long. But they also have a large language model that they they tout as having similar capabilities. So we know there's there's four out there today that are kind of similar, and it'll just be interesting to see, you know, who does history credit with inventing this a decade from now. But likely this this is going to be a game changer in, in the software industry. One thing I'll say, though, is it, it's not clear whether it's going to be a huge moneymaker. The, the strategy, for example, that... Apple's pursuing with this is to try to commoditize the AI models by baking in some of the capabilities into their software and hardware. And, and specifically they focused on stable diffusion because that's an open source model. And the strategy there is if you commoditize your complements, you increase the value of your product. 
So I think Apple also has a very logical strategy when it comes to this. So a bunch of bets have been placed. We don't really know how they're going to play out yet. Can you cover, Jason, the impact on NVIDIA and needing more GPUs and in big volume in order to run these large language programs? Definitely. So the chat GPT or GPT-3 was trained on 10,000 NVIDIA GPUs. They're training a, a larger model, GPT-4, on you know potentially a larger number of NVIDIA GPUs. And Mike knows the stats, but Facebook bought a, an incredible amount of NVIDIA GPUs in the last year to, to train their AI models. And it's just, it's everyone's competing to have the larger model trained on the more data. And that just requires more and more hardware to do it. One thing the industry, you know, in media keep talking about is this uh, generalized AI. In my mind, it's it's less about, and I think the media gets it wrong, is, is it's not like a sentient AI being, it's a model of models. So it's it's an AI model that can decipher what kind of problem you're giving it and then choose the model that is going to solve that problem. So, you know, when you go to ChatGPT, it's a language model. When you go to DALI, it's an image generation model. So at some point, there's going to be this AI that we think is general and you'll just give it a problem. It'll figure out how to solve that. It's got all these mental models of how to solve, you know, how to solve whatever problem and then it, it'll provide the correct answer. Um, and potentially it'll use different models to play on each other to, to make sure it's giving you the most appropriate answer. One thing to point out there is these models that we're talking about, ChatGPT and the, the image models are probabilistic, not deterministic. And I think that's going to be an important distinction that we'll hear more about over the next couple of years. And the example Jason just gave is one way that you could apply different forms of models in order to answer whether it's a search query or a broad question with different models. How do you see the revenue coming from the people who license these um, capabilities? I have a little bit of a perspective on it, and it's probably wrong, so I'll preface it with that. NVIDIA, their approach is, uh, for a relatively low amount of money, is my understanding, is you can, you'll be able to license their Megatron model and retrain it on your data and they're going to make the money on the hardware. So there's, there's many ways to, to make money on it, I guess from, from Microsoft's perspective, all they need to do is make sure that the global population continues to buy the Microsoft office suite um, and maybe steal some market share from Google on search. And that's a huge win for them. What about, what about Google? Will they move to some kind of subscription model to the extent that where, I, where they're not so totally dependent on advertising? I don't think they'll have to. Um, I, I think it's it's too early to tell because we don't really know what this stuff is good for. As of, as of right now, it's kind of a fun toy. And monetizing that is probably best with advertising. Once it has some real tangible value, you'd expect that people will pay for it. I'll add that Google has a, a, a team that is dedicated to designing semiconductors and hardware. And there's ways you can make, if your model is, is um, fully baked, so to speak, and you're not going to make updates or changes to it, there's ways that you could 
bake this onto the hardware and really run these models at a much more efficient cost, cost for heat, cost for electricity. And they could potentially be looking at that so it won't be much of, as much of a hit to the margins on each search. Yeah, Max's father, Brian's become convinced he's a Google stockholder or an Alphabet stockholder that Google is already using uh, AI to enhance its search results. Yeah, I'm not surprised to hear that. They haven't been super explicit about the fact that they've been doing that. I mean, they've obviously been using some forms of that for their predictive searches. Because um, if you'll, you know, you type into the Chrome browser window a search and it'll start suggesting some things. And the suggestions for me are going to be different than those for Jason or you. We're all going to have them somewhat tailored to what Google thinks we will search for. And, and the same goes if, if you're a user of, of Gmail. When you're drafting an email, they'll suggest ways to complete the sentence that you're, that you're typing out. And in theory, that's trained on maybe your, your writing patterns or at least people that are of similar background education and that kind of thing to you is, is that's the kind of text that you'll produce. What about Apple at 100? Yeah, the, it, it's, it's interesting because um, I actually think Apple is very well positioned and has already made some of the really smart moves. And, and by that, I mean specifically enabling their software, the um, iOS, to have essentially be pre-configured for stable diffusion. And, and what that does is that enables app developers to build better apps and you're talking about running a relatively large model, nowhere near as big as, as GPT-3, but pretty capable when it comes down to it, running it locally on your phone. So Apple's design expertise when it comes to semiconductors actually puts it in a really good position to encourage the development of, in their case, they're going to push for open source models because that will make their product better because they can tailor their product to work with that open source model. So it'll be a win for developers and maybe it's a little bit of a pushback against the big bad Apple and their big bad fee structure. <laughs> but I think that's that that risk is still there. I think there is certainly a sort of movement that is very upset with the 30% rake that Apple gets on App Store transactions. Other countries are pushing against it harder than we are locally, but it's an inevitable problem that's only going to get bigger. I do think that there will be a point where Apple will hopefully be cheap enough to make sense. I I don't know if I'm going to call the $100 price point yet. <laughs> I might have to do a little more work on that. Well, $100, there's, uh, there's uh, here again, it's page three. There's 16 billion Apple shares outstanding. So $100 would get the value down to a trillion seven. And if they can hang on to, I'm going to round up to a hundred billion of free cash flow, that'd be 16 or 17 times free cash flow, which is about a 6% free cash yield. And it's hard to imagine that with all those Apple users, iPhone users out there, I guess there's more than a billion, maybe quite a lot more than a billion. It's hard to imagine that that a six or seven percent free cash yield on Apple, with the possibility of them 
holding on to their margins, an awful lot of their free cash flow. I think probably do some work on this this weekend, but I think way more than half their free cash flow comes from the margin from selling iPhones. So is it recurring? Can you hang on to your iPhone longer? At 16 or 17 times free cash flow, you know, at some point, uh, you can't argue that Apple is expensive. Well, I, I'm probably a little bit jaded because I think when we first bought Apple, it was at like 10 times free cash flow. So, um, <laughs> well, you know, it's no longer a portfolio position at the moment, but uh, we 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 got it so cheap then. It's all I'm always going to be have that stuck in my head that maybe it'll get cheaper, um, <laughs> and, and it's probably not the right way to look at it. But it, it's still lingering. Right. If you if you if you take Microsoft to go back to page nine, you take Microsoft. Let's say they can enhance their free cash flow. Let's put Microsoft at seventy billion of free cash flow rather than sixty-two. Because I do think that even if it's only PR built capacity, they will be able to argue that their all their products are enhanced by their involvement with AI. Just use around number twenty times seventy billion would be a billion four, and a billion four divided by you know they have just a little more than seven billion shares outstanding. There's your two hundred, two hundred dollar level for Microsoft. So these things may still be expensive, but at some point, what we'd love to have is things that have really strong positions that can compound their cash flow at least ten percent a year. And, be able to uh, buy them at you know something something less than twenty times free run rate free cash flow. With that, I think it's a good time to break that thing. So everyone stay well and stay healthy and more more on all these subjects uh, next Wednesday. Take care, everyone. Thank you for joining us this week. Please tune in again next week as we will be back on Wednesday. As a reminder, nothing on this podcast should be considered investment advice. You should always do your own work to determine if an investment is suitable for you. The views expressed on this podcast are the hosts alone and do not constitute an offer to sell or a recommendation to purchase or a solicitation of an offer to buy, any security nor a recommendation for any investment product or service. While certain information contained herein has been obtained from sources believed to be reliable, Neither the hosts nor any of their employers or their affiliates have independently verified this information, and its accuracy and completeness cannot be guaranteed. Accordingly, no representation or warranty, expressed or implied, is made as to and no reliance should be placed on the fairness, accuracy, timeliness, or completeness of this information. The hosts and all employers and their affiliated persons assume no liability for this information and no obligation to update the information or analysis contained herein in the future and may or may not hold positions in the securities mentioned.